can't start without the chair, right? As you woke up and you got ready this morning, um, I take it that most of you, if not all of you, probably barring some of our children, were concerned about what you're wearing and what you look like. That many of us probably uh, most days get up and we think about that. What do we look like? What are we projecting? What are we trying to communicate by the way we look and by the way we dress? Um, I grew up in a home where my mother wanted us all, wanted all of us three kids to look a certain way. Casey laughs at me because all throughout high school, my mother would iron my clothes for me and set them out. Uh, and so when I got to college, you know, I, I rebelled in a lot of ways. But one of the ways I rebelled is that I wore what I wanted to wear, which meant going to the thrift store and buying grungy clothes. If you remember the 90s, growing my beard out really long and my hair out. Uh, so much so that one of the first times I visited back home, I was walking down the road to my house and my mother told my brother who was in the car with her, hey, lock the door, there's a homeless man. <laughs> now, one of the other parts of my life that was rebelling at the time was my walk with the Lord. And I was pretty angry at the church for a lot of reasons. And so one of the things that I would do when I was in college is I would go in and in all of that grandeur and that beauty and go into churches and sit in the back with a attitude of, huh, I wonder if anybody will say anything to me. I would sit back and really kind of judge the people of the church and say, oh, these hypocrites. Now, I was a young punk and I was setting them up, but... Would you be surprised to know that I was treated differently than the guy that came in with the sports coat on and the kids and the wife in tow? You know, we're continuing in the book of James. Two weeks ago, we covered the first seven verses where James was telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that there should be no partiality among us as believers in Christ. And the parable that he gave us was this parable, right? If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man dressed in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and you say, sit over here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by the footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and judged with evil motives? James, as we've gone through this book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as James is writing this letter, it exposes us. The reason that I have this chair and I put this chair here, if you've been with us, is that I've, I've wanted to create in you the imagery of being maybe in a counseling session. And one of the things that I've wanted to do is to to, to bid us to come and to sit in this chair and let the Word of God stand over us and let it expose us. We've got this tendency, don't we? We've got this tendency to value people based on the wrong motives. We've got this tendency to evaluate our brothers and sisters in the Lord 
according to worldly standard and worldly things and not according to kingdom principles. So many times we live and we act and we behave in such a way that we expose that we're not living according to the way that God wants us to live. I mean, as you heard me read just two of these verses again from two weeks ago, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? And we hear these verses and the tendency that we have is to say, yeah, those people. When what God wants us to do is to sit under this word and to say, how much of that is in me? How much of me? I'm in this chair. I'm the one who needs to deal with myself. So the question, one of the many questions I would ask you this morning. Is why and what do you make judgments upon? Why and what do you make judgments upon? It's interesting here in verse nine of our text. This word pops back up that we saw in verse one. But if you show partiality, it's the same word in Greek where it says in, in, in verse one of personal favoritism. And this word um, literally in its original language could be seen or should be seen as the, the word means to receive face. In other words, to kind of look on the outward appearance, to make a judgment, to make perceptions based on outward appearance. And we're so trained by the world to do this, aren't we? I mean, let's be honest for a minute. You see a certain person looking a certain way and you make certain judgments, right? I could get all in your business and go through a list. I won't do that this morning. But you know deep down inside of you that that happens. It's not good. It's not good. To look upon face and make judgments. And, and, and what's interesting when you look at this word, partiality, to receive face, that when you look at the Old Testament, we're told over and over again several times in the Old Testament that guess what? God does not look upon face and make judgments. One example of this. And if you've been in church for a while, you know this account. Is that Samuel was uh, tasked to find a new king. People of Israel had rebelled against God and wanted a king. And so the, the first king that they got was Saul. And I want you to notice what the text says about Saul in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. You don't have to turn there. But it says this. He had gone to Saul's home where his father was. And it, and it says this, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now, that's the kind of person we want as king, don't we? The tall, the handsome, the strong. This is it. This guy is going to lead Israel, a ruler. 
And we know the story. Saul fell. And Samuel was tasked in finding his replacement. And we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and listen to verses 6 and 7. Here uh, he is, he is at David's father's house, at Jesse's house. And Jesse has many sons. And he's parading them in front of Samuel. And notice what it says. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely this, the Lord's anointed, is before him. Eliab had this stature and this look about him. And Samuel made this judgment. But then look what verse 7 says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is just an example of one of the things that we do is we make judgments and we need to know brothers and sisters in Christ. God does not make judgments as we make judgments. He does not look at the outward appearance and make judgments, but God looks at the heart. And I'm not poking fun here. I had this in mind to say, and then I saw our video this morning. And as you notice, as they were teaching the children about Jesus... That cartoonish figure, he was a pretty good looking dude, right? Flowing hair, that silk white robe. But the book of Isaiah tells us what? The book of Isaiah in prophesying about the coming Messiah says that he he was not any form that we would think much of him. And in fact, as Jesus came and as he walked this earth, it was over and over again. People really didn't recognize him as Messiah. I think one of the reasons is that in their mind they were like, this is the Messiah? They were judging him according to worldly standards. God doesn't judge according to worldly standards. Two weeks ago, as we saw in verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. God doesn't judge the way we do. As we continue, or as we look at this passage, I want to read verse 8 and 9, and I want you to ask yourself kind of what stands out. It says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as a transgressor. It's a pretty easy flow, right? If you are fulfilling the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing that, then you're committing a sin and you're a transgressor. And and, and what we see, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is that the way of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, those who have believed the gospel and are part of God's family, that this kingdom is against partiality. And I think there's a temptation in all of us to minimize this and say, "Ah, James, why are you spending so much time here? This is just a little thing. I mean, aren't there bigger fish to fry? Did it stick out to you when I read this that it says you're fulfilling? Do you notice how it characterized the law there? The royal law. Why would James use that word? 
was he introduced this topic. Remember that only two times in this book, James talks about Jesus uh, overtly, uses his name. And remember how we said that James, this is special attention. One was at the very beginning in chapter one, verse one, and then here in chapter two, verse one. And we notice that James went to great lengths to, to, to say something about Jesus here, that, that he, he gives this full picture of who Jesus is. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Some of your translations have it, Lord Jesus Christ, full of glory. The picture here in the wording, and the readers would have understood this, that James was putting Jesus in a place that he deserves and he belongs as a king, as sovereign, as a ruler, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that he is ruler and reigns over all, and we are his subjects. And then when it gets down to verse 5, he says this, Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of what? Of the kingdom. We have the king. We have the kingdom. And this word kingdom, the same root word is used again in verse 8 when it says the royal law. And so we could look at it and say the kingdom law. Or the law given to, given to us by our king. It's the law of the land according to the kingdom of God. To love your neighbor as yourself. This glorious Christ. This glorious Christ gives us this command. Remember when Jesus was asked. What is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus answer? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of the kingdom. It's the royal law. How did he live? Did Jesus love his neighbor? Remember, as we went through the book of Mark, that Jesus was constantly loving people. We were just blown away by the mercy and the grace and the touch of Christ to all of those around him. And we saw that he he did it without showing partiality. In fact, he went where most people didn't go to love those who most people said he shouldn't love. On the Sermon of the Mount, which, which James, I think, has the Sermon of the Mount on his mind constantly as he's writing, we're told things like this, blessed are the poor. Over and over in that sermon, so as Jesus taught, as Jesus lived, we see this ethic, this kingdom ethic, this kingdom law being played out. And did you notice in that verse, it also says this, if, however, you're fulfilling the law according to the Scripture... According to the words that God has given. I think he's referring back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 where it says in verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's this really great little phrase there that's repeated in Leviticus there. And it says, for I am the Lord your God. That God, in his scriptures, as dictated there to Moses, is saying, this is a part of the royal law. This is my decree. This is God's will. This is God's plan. And Jesus affirms this. This is part of the kingdom 
ethic. And let me push a little more. One of the things, if you've been in this church very long, uh, if you've been in this church for a really long time, you know, one of the things that Gary constantly have reminded us of, and if you've been here a long time and heard Gary's teachings, is the one another's. And guess which part of the one another's is most often repeated? To love one another. You can't read the gospel and not be struck as Jesus is teaching when Jesus starts to define who your neighbor is. Just think of the account of the Good Samaritan. Who is our neighbor? Or as we look at God's inspired word and we look at the writings of Paul and Paul says that because of the gospel that there is therefore no longer slave, free, man, woman, Jew, Gentile. That because of the gospel we have been changed, we have been made new and we've been brought into one family. The value, the worth of one another in the kingdom drives us to this place to where there should be no partiality among us. I mean, in John chapter 13, Jesus says that the world should know you by your love for one another. Is that true of us? In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, the church, the very first church is described as having everything in common, not meaning that everybody there was the same socioeconomic class, but that they had everything in common because they were submitting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were submitting themselves to the lordship and the kingliness of Christ, and they were desiring to follow him, and they loved each other so much that they just put everything in a pile and said, we are one family, no partiality. We're all together. We're all one. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible in general, and I love about James, is that the Bible oftentimes anticipates arguments that we make in our own heads, right? And I think one of the things that James is anticipating here, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is this whole idea of, come on, Lewis. Come on, James. Really? I mean, there are a lot of things that you could be talking about in this short little book. Partiality? <laughs> There's worse sins. Listen to verse 9 through 11 and just let this sink in for a moment. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And we want to get sidetracked by a lot of things in that text, and we want to miss James' big point, but he's saying this, if you have shown partiality, you are a transgressor of the law. You are a lawbreaker. Just like if you were to commit murder or commit adultery. And again, we sit in these seats and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't that a world of difference? 
Years ago, many years ago, I was living down in Ringgold, and I used to ride my bicycle every morning around Ringgold, and there were these advertisements. I don't know if the church exists anymore, so... Well, I'm not going to apologize for calling it out. I'm not going to say the name of the church, but I just remember the advertisement was something church. For people who hate church. And my feathers would just get so ruffled by that advertisement. And it was wrong for so many reasons. But in that little tagline, for people who hate church... We look at this gross violation of what James is talking about. Now, I understand what this church was getting at. I get it, right? I get what they're trying to pull off. For those of you maybe who have been hurt by church, or maybe for those of you who don't like kind of the older fuddy-duddy church or, or whatever. But what is this church doing? It's judging. It's showing partiality. It's dividing. In some ways, it's doing the same thing it's accusing the old fuddy-duddy church of doing. For example, how do you think this church might have responded if one of you walked in wearing your coat and tie, carrying your King James Version Bible? You know what they would have thought, you don't belong here. Why are we so judgmental? Are we so partial? You know, one of the states of the American church that makes me want to gag sometimes is how we kind of parse ourselves out. That you may have the hip church, right? You've got to be a hipster to go to this church. Maybe you have the young church where you walk in and everybody's really young and full of energy. And then you have the old church where people are just waiting to die. One of the things that I'm so thankful when I get to stand up here and I get to look at you all is I see all those categories. But really, isn't it, isn't it great, isn't it great that in the same church service that we'll hear crying of little ones, that we'll see folks that are a little older, you know, that are transitioning in, in different stages of life, and all joking aside, we do have people in here that they're the eager expectation of their hearts as they want to die well. This is what the community of Christ should look like. There's no partiality. I'm not saying we exactly represent that. There's no partiality. That in the room of a healthy church, there's one common theme. I was blind, but now I see. And that binds us together underneath the Lordship of Christ. That we work together, that we learn together, that we live life together until He comes back to get us. 
I want to jump back into these verses in 10 through 11. And it's clear to see that James is saying is don't play with sin. Don't play around with sin. James isn't saying that if you commit one sin that you're not saved or that you've, you know, that sort of thing. But what James is saying is that people who are believers should take sin seriously. We should take sin seriously. We shouldn't want to be known as transgressors of the law, of lawbreakers. And you might be hung up on this verse 11. Do not commit adultery. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And you may say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What in the world is going on here? I mean, let's think about it. In the Old Testament days, was there a different punishment for murder and adultery than partiality? Yeah. In fact, we can read the New Testament and we look at sexual sin and sexual sin is, is, is categorized as a different type of sin because it affects the body. And so what in the world is James saying? And I think it's very clear what he's saying. He takes these, these two Laws from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments, and he, he's teaching us something. Now, the, the Ten Commandments, to the Jewish mind, they would have known that the Ten Commandments are looked at, that there are two tables of the Ten Commandments. One is vertical, that has to do with your relationship with God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Then the second table is horizontal. You're starting to hear it, right? The two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summed up the whole of the law when he said that. And so what James is doing here is he's saying this royal law, this law of the land is that when you show partiality, you are not loving your neighbor and you are breaking, you are trampling on the law that is horizontal towards one another. And it's God's will that you love your neighbor. And that you don't kill. And that you don't take your neighbor's wife. That's God's will. Take it seriously. And the other thing. That I think we have to ask here. Is where is your heart if you're willing to play with sin? You're going to trust and believe God's word, or are we not? So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Many times in the counseling room, I, this phrase has been uttered to me. You know, Lewis, I'm a Christian. But I'm not one of those like Christian fanatics. Or, you know, I believe all that stuff in the Bible, but I'm not like a super Christian. And so what's normally followed by that is what? Yeah, 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 I believe, but there are things in my life that are contrary to this book, and I'm okay with that because I don't feel called to be a super Christian. I hope that you see in this writing that this third way is non-existent in James' mind. 
There's two roads. There's two paths. And the path of wisdom, we have said over and over in this study, the path of wisdom is the way of God. So hear this again in verse 12 and 13. Notice the theme. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one's who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I, I believe, I believe that in verse 12, he's speaking to believers. I believe in verse 12, he's speaking to believers. And again, we see this word, if you've been with us for the past couple of months, this phrase, the law of liberty, we could go back to chapter one and look at verse 25. And we saw that there. And I'm not going to go all the way back into that. But I love that James words it this way, because what we said back then is the law of liberty. It's like looking instead of looking in the mirror. That was the passage and looking at creating a better version of ourselves that James says, look at the law of liberty. And we, we said at that point that we're looking to the path of Christ. And I love the phrase, because when we look to the path of life, we're looking to the path of freedom for the believer. Where in the world have we gotten this association with the will of God that lets us think that the path of Christ is something to be resisted or something that is reigning on our parade? As Christians, the path, the law, the commands of Christ, the way that the gospel projects us, the direction to which it projects us is a way of freedom. And we know it deep down in our bones, believers. You have never felt more alive than when you are loving your neighbor for the sake of Christ. And you know it. You've been in that situation. Many of you, if you had talked to me and I asked you, hey, when is the time that you have felt the most alive in your relationship with Christ? You may say, hey, you know, one of these times when we were in Haiti or one of these times when we were overseas here or doing this or I was witnessing to my neighbor and just the love of God was just all over me, and I've never felt more alive. This is one of the reasons why Luther said this in his book, The Bondage of the Will. Your heart is not freed. It's not free until your eyes have been opened. It's at that point, when you become a believer, it's at that point that the will is free to do the will of God. And as believers, that is rain on dry parchment, dry land of the soul. This is the law of liberty, and so... He's encouraging us to be salt, to be light, to sacrifice, to not be judgmental towards our neighbor. And then I think when we look at verse 13. I, I just believe and, and you'll hear as I play this out, why well, I think that James is talking about an unbeliever here. He says, for judgment will be merciless to those who have, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The most transformative, some to me, the most transformative words in the New Testament is the little phrase, but God. We were hostile. We were alienated. We were hopeless. We were helpless. But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Did what? Made us alive. Our salvation is based upon the mercy of God. 
And those who have been shown mercy, what happens in their lives? Mercy comes out of them. And so if we are a people that mercy is not coming out of us, it means that something is wrong. And when I say that, it either means that something is going on in your soul and that's the warning light that should be going off, or it means you're not a believer. And so how in the world can we be people who hold to partiality when the whole standing that we have as a people is based on mercy? There's no partiality in that. You didn't deserve anything that you got. The example I use over and over, and I'll use it again, is that as God chose us, it wasn't like we do when we pick a basketball team. That we look and we see the biggest and the strongest and the fastest and the tallest, and we say, oh, I want him on my team. That's not how God does it. God has established his family based on his mercy. Will we be a people who show no partiality? Like I told you when I was in seminary, I was still a, and I'm sure still am, a very judgmental person at times. And um, my uh, mentor in seminary, I got to pray in chapel, which I guess was a big deal. I'm sure he was the one who got to ask a student is the only way that I got invited And he came up to me afterwards and he was like, I'm so proud of you. And I thought, oh man, he's recognized my brilliance in my prayer. And he was so proud of me because I hadn't cut my hair or beard to pray. I didn't look like a seminary boy, right? Now, what was interesting was that was still an area of pride in my life. And the church that I attended in seminary was um, awful. And it it was awful because it was just like all the churches that had hurt me in the past. It was filled with, you could just close your eyes and just substitute the people from the church that had hurt me, that I was so judgmental towards, that I was rejecting all my life. And it, you know, God, I just felt in my spirit, God would not let me leave that church. And so for two or three years, I served that church and God taught me how to love people Even people with whom I didn't like very much. And the first step in that was to realize. There's nothing about me to like either. So will we be a people church? Will we be a people who sees God and his kingdom for what it is? That we bask in his mercy and in his grace. And we extend that to one another. So that as we continue on this path at Signal Mountain Bible Church, we are a people who repent of the sin of partiality and a people who stand firm on the realization of God and His Word and His Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for this Word. God, I thank You for Your Son, And God, I thank you that while I was still a sinner, that he died for me. Help us to be a people who rejoice over what you have done and love one another well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.